How do you solve a crime when there is no evidence? How do you solve a crime in a world that doesn't even exist? And how do you solve a crime involving an NBA star, a computer hacker, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fraud that touches on every internet transaction? That's the investigation that we're going to examine in today's Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Ways. I'm Declan Hill, an Associate Professor of Investigations at the University of New Haven. And each week, myself and my students, this week it's Brigitte Harrison and Alexia Miller, we bring you an interview with one of the world's best criminal investigators. And this week, it's the first ever criminal conviction of a domain theft. Now, a domain is the real estate of the internet. It's the name that you give to your website and or your brand, and they can be worth an enormous amount of money. In 2004, the domain beer.com sold for $7 million. In 2019, the domain voice.com sold for $30 million. So there's an entire micro industry dedicated to investing in domain names, and of course, because they're so valuable, there's an entire micro-industry of thieves dedicated to stealing them. For example, in the early 2000s, the domain sex.com, of course, was the object of a $67 million civil lawsuit alleging all kinds of financial misfeasance. However, in this episode, we examine the first ever criminal case. And our guest is a star. John Gorman was a senior organized crime investigator for the New Jersey State Police. Then he was moved into digital crime, and he discovered that exponential leap in criminal activity in the digital world. He joined us on Crime Waves. John Gorman, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Waves this morning. It's an honor to have an investigator like you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, look, let's just get cracking right away. It's October 2008. You are a cyber crime investigator. You're mm -hmm. sitting at your desk in Hamilton, New Jersey, and the phone rings. Mm -hmm. Tell us what happened next, please. A woman by the name of uh, Leslie Angel is on the other end of the phone. And she yep. said, John, I, we need your help. They were victims of a domain theft case. A domain is it's intellectual property. It's we'll see a uh, say it's, you know, CNN.com. That's a domain name. There's property rights to that. They purchased a domain, p2p.com, and someone stole it from them. And for the last two years, they've been trying to find the right police agency that had the resources to properly investigate it and prosecute it. So she reached out to us, and I happened to be the one who took the call. Now, you've got to, I mean, you've got to, you know, two years is like, geological ice age time in terms of computing. This is practically a cold case. It is. It's considered a cold case. It's exactly right. The theft took place in 2006, May of 2006, and she's coming to me in October 2008. 
But to their credit, they did quite a bit of work on their own. They, they, they had a civil suit going against who they believed you know, the person that the stole it from them. So they did have uh, quite a bit of evidence that they could supply, but prosecute this criminally to have a criminal investigation. There was a whole nother level that we had to bring to this to, uh, to, to get a, a successful c- criminal prosecution. And a lot of that depended on evidence that was no longer available because as you point out, it's two years old. Now, before we get into how you prosecute, excuse me, how you investigate a case, let's walk her through, you know, a whole bunch of our listeners and viewers know exactly what IPO is and all this stuff, but, but, but walk us through this and talk to us, uh, if you don't mind, make a comparison between real estate, like actual real estate, because this is computer real estate. Tell us what, what is going on in this circumstance. Well, it's considered intellectual property. Okay. So, uh, that, that's exactly what it is. It's intangible. So, you know, you have physical property and then you have intangible property, intellectual property that you own, but it's intangible. It's, it, we call it intellectual property. And there's certain rights that go with that because it's property that you own. The difficulty comes in sometimes with those types of investigations is proving ownership and transfer of ownership. And, and that's what happened in this case. And, and has anyone at that point, October 2008, has anyone ever successfully done a criminal investigation of theft of an IPO before? No, there's been no successful domain theft arrest up to this point, successful prosecution to this point. And the reason for that is it, it is resource intensive. It takes a certain skill set. Um, it, it's so up until that point, um, it just no one was able to successfully investigate and prosecute that. And in fact, the case when I got it had been through a couple different agencies for for whatever reason, they didn't have the resources or the personnel to properly investigate. And it take the other thing too is people have to realize it's there's the investigation part, but then there's the prosecution side. You need the right prosecutors because I worked hand in hand with some very good prosecutors in this case too that we knew just how to go about it with a with a legal strategy as to how we were going to prosecute the, the suspect in this case. So there's a whole host of issues as to why this wasn't investigated before. Yeah, but this, I mean, I, I would count three strikes already against this case. One, it's cold case because it's yeah. two years old. Yeah. Two is nobody in the world has successfully prosecuted at, up to that point, 2008, yeah. a criminal stealing of an IPO. And three, a whole bunch of agencies have turned this down. So you take this call from this unknown person, mm-hmm. October 2008, and you decide yeah. to get involved in it. Step, again, I'm, 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 I'm loading up. What has happened in 2006? What was the actual theft and how did it work? If you can explain that to me and our listeners, and then we'll get into how you investigated. But what had happened in 2006? In 2006, as I, I alluded to before, the transfer of ownership, it's tracking transfer of ownership with intellectual property. How do you do that? Well, there's a couple of different ways. And in this case, there was a transfer proving with email and with the domain you have, you register it, you register, actually register domain under your name. Okay. So the registration changed in 2006, unbeknownst to the owners. So they said, how did this happen? They woke up one day and saw that their most prized possession, P2P.com, which they purchased for $160,000. Uh, was gone. It was no longer under their control. So you would log in, it's you log into a screen and it shows that you have control of it. 
they saw that when they logged in, it was no longer under their control. And that there was documentation showing there was a transfer of ownership to the suspect in this case. And that's what prompted their investigation. So that so was hang on 2006. A, so, so just a second. So I'm at DeclanHill.com mm -hmm. and I load into my website, DeclanHill.com, and it's no longer there. It's not mine. Somebody not else yours. around the world has just taken it. They've and, taken it. And, and, they've, and they've, quote, I've, quote, transferred the ownership from me to somebody else. In this case, these people, like, well, how did they transfer this ownership? Had, had, was it forgery? What were they doing? Exactly right. That's, that's eventually what we proved is, you know, let's go back to say DeclanHill.com is that I somehow found out your password into the domain site and I was able to go in under your name and say, I am selling it to John Gorman. And I make that transfer happen. And then I manufacture emails to show that you and I agreed upon that. And then it comes under my control. So that now once on the registrant of that domain, I can redirect it as to where I want it. And I show ownership, which means, so I have ownership, transfer of ownership, this, that determines value. That's a lot of what we're seeing now in the Bitcoin world is, you know, how do you know that you have value? A big part of it is showing ownership. So you have intellectual property that you cannot pick up. It's not tangible. Right. Yes. How do you prove ownership? Well, it's electronic. You have to have a certificate. You have to have documentation that shows that I am the registrant. And a lot of times all that comes down to is that I have a valid login. I can authenticate to the system with a login and password to show that I own it. So when I go into DeclanHill.com, I knew your login and password. So I stole it from you, but I manufactured this whole email scheme to show that, hey, you agreed to sell it to me. And then there was a transfer that took place. And that's how this whole thing went down. That's that's how it happened. And 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 that their site, their intellectual property, they paid $160,000 for it, which is a huge chunk of change. Right. Frankly, as I think all our listeners will know, DeclanHill.com would be available for ten dollars. Well, so just know that one thing that really would made the two things made this very valuable: the domain, Declan. You had the fact that it was a three-letter domain. All the three three character domains were taken at that time, and then the domain P2P, which really stood for peer-to-peer, -peer, which was one of the hottest things going at the time, which was the direct transfer of videos at the time, or I should say, direct transfer of data. It was hot, so I mean, there was a, a there was a, uh, a really a future value to this. Um, so it, it had in value not just in one hundred sixty six thousand, but in the potential value that it could have because of the business environment that peer to peer was operating in, and they had P two P. So yes. that made it tremendously valuable. Now, just so that I mean, some of our listeners. Um, have at times, I know I have, uh, when I was working on match fixing, try to approach the police, try to phone up a police or try to go to the cops and say, hey, I've got this massive case. What, what was the difference in that phone call that you got from this person at your desk that made you go, hang on a second, even though it's a cold case, even though people have turned this down, even though nobody has successfully prosecuted a criminal case like this before, what was the factor in that phone conversation that made you take it seriously? A couple of things. One is let Leslie plead for help. I mean, she, 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 she pled for help and she said, John, I really need you to just sit down and, and 
She said, I think that once I present my case to you in full, that you will understand this and you'll have the resources to do it. Luckily, the New Jersey State Police were fortunate enough to have a dedicated cybercrime unit. That's all we do, have a steady diet of it. So unlike a lot of other agencies where they're chasing homicide, burglaries, uh, crimes against people, we have a unit dedicated to nothing but cybercrime. So we develop an expertise in that. So I knew just just from talking to her, I knew that if I sat down with her, if, if what she was telling me was true, we can come up with an investigative strategy to determine who did it and then develop a successful prosecution around it. Um, what did you do next? You put the phone down and then how do you go about building an investigation? Well, I waited. She, she said that she was going to send me a package with all the evidence that they had. And uh, she came in with about four huge boxes of, she delivered four huge boxes of documents. It was about 30,000 pages of documents in there. Everything they had accumulated in their civil case, including depositions from the suspect, uh, evidence that they had found. So uh, I was able to to call through that and then set up a meeting with them and say, you know, I just want to get a couple of things straight. And because I knew that the key to this case was, is how devices communicate on a network, on a computer network. And uh, that's how you run these cases back. But as you pointed out, a lot of that evidence wasn't there because it was two years old. So we had to come up with a different investigative strategy as to how we're going to go at this. And I thought that maybe it would be in those documents somewhere that she provided. So I got all that. Uh, I reviewed it. And then we had a meeting with uh, her and her husband, Albie. And let's tell you, they were, like, once you heard their story, I mean, you, you could not but want to help them, you know, to play. They were victims. They were fleeced. I mean, they were they were robbed out of a. I believe them. I believe that they were robbed out of one hundred and sixty thousand dollars and had no one to turn to. They had no one to help them. And I felt that you know, we had the resources and the personnel. We had the uh, the knowledge to, to look at this yeah, maybe do it, do it. from a different perspective, you know, just put a different angle to it. And let's see if we can get this done. John, uh, before we, we, we move on, uh, y- 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 you throw in the, the, the verb, I culled through the documents. Now, that's 30,000 pages. That's yeah. like, uh, you know, best-selling novels around four or 500 pages. Uh, that's like effectively reading 60 books. Yeah. Um, how do you do that as an investigator? What, what, how do you organize 60 books like that? I knew what should have been there to prosecute this case. So that's what I did. I mean, just running back cyber crimes, there's certain things that, you know, we had um, from the, the, the company, the agency that actually hosted the domain for them, we had uh, quite a bit of data from them. I know a lot of that I could exclude. I knew that it, there was a few key elements I needed to find. So that's what I was looking for before I had my meeting with them. Right. Listen, this, this is what I'm looking for. And then I, that's what I zeroed in on. It took me a while to just separate things from the case, you know, the important from the unimportant. And then we could go from there. And if we had to, we could go back. I can maybe subpoena more documents, issue search warrants, those types of things. But it all starts with knowing what should be there. If this happened is the way they said, there's certain elements that should be there. And that's what I started looking for. So effectively, you got a you got a mountain of hay, but the needle you're looking for is is a particular smoking gun, right? Like whichever. Now, what would be the smoking gun in a case of IPO theft? What what would you be looking for? Well, I'm looking for again. So we have intellectual property, which means 
transfer of ownership took place yes. over a computer network. Whenever something happens over a computer network, we go back to investigations 101, low cards exchange principle. There's going to be an artifact left on both sides of it. So I'm looking for those artifacts, date and time stamps. I'm looking for internet protocol addresses. I'm looking for email date and time stamps, uh, email addresses, things to tie me into authoritative documentation that said, this must have happened here and I can prove it. So that's what I start looking for. I look for those artifacts that I know have to be there, must be there. And what, what did you find as you're going through that 30,000 30, pages of stuff? I, I found, I, you know, I found exactly what they said. There was, a, there was a couple of things that took place. One thing, one smoking gun was this, this exchange took place in all of about six minutes. So they, so suppose, yeah. So, so we'll go back to DeclanHill.com. You're going to sell me your IP and the whole encounter happens over six minutes. Wow. And the, the IP addressing was suspicious. Uh, you know, they're both coming out of New Jersey. So a lot of things raised a lot of red flags. So um, that's where I started to hone in on. And I, I worked backwards from there. And I started to say, you know, if, he, if you and I are going to engage in this type of transaction and I am proving it with email messages, okay, Let's prove that those email messages did in fact occur. And how do we do that? Now, again, we're up against the, the, the problem here that we're two years into this case. And a lot of these artifacts I'm looking for don't exist. There's nothing that says an internet service provider, an email provider must maintain logs for a certain amount of time. So we, those were some of the, the hurdles that uh, you know, we came upon investigating this case. So what do you do to get around those hurdles? You, you've now got your 30,000 pages mm -hmm. summarized. You're like, okay, these are the things that should be there. Some are there, some are not. Mm -hmm. What's the next step in terms of an investigation? Well, to, to turn, what, do we, what can we get? So luckily uh, in this case, they dealt with PayPal, which is a bank. So they yes. must maintain records. So I was able to go back and there are certain transaction IDs that, that, that are posted every time that there's a, um, you know, a, a transaction with PayPal and he manufactured those. So I was able to go back at PayPal and say, please send me all information associated with these transaction IDs. They didn't exist. So then I started running backwards. Uh, let's take a different look at the case. Say if it's a Yahoo address or a Gmail address, they don't have specific date and time or IP addresses, but can you tell me if this address ever existed? Right. And that's all I needed to know. So that's how I started to work it. I said, I know what should be there. And if this suspect manufactured this evidence, then it won't be there. And I can prove that it should be there and it wasn't. So all of these things that he presented to defend himself, I know were manufactured because I'm proving that it should be there, but it's not. There should be a record from Gmail, Yahoo. There should be a record from okay. PayPal. And it's not. It's like, hey, I received a certified check from Bank of America. Well, I go to Bank of America and I don't see any record of that. So where did this check come from? Where did this stuff come from? And, and the difference there is, so we're looking for artifacts. If I get an email from you today, within a certain time period, I will be able to get records to show that your IP address, address sent it at a certain date and time. Right. Yep. I couldn't get that because those records were gone. I couldn't yep. prove that. But what I could prove is that the email address that you're saying you used never existed. So I was able to get authoritative information from these providers that say, all this stuff, it's bogus. It, it doesn't exist. The, the uh, 
transaction ID numbers. They don't even fit our criteria. You know, they're 10 characters. Ours are 11. Uh, right. We don't use these. And I went on and on. And that's how I backed into this. And I built a circumstantial case around this that said this didn't happen. It was a flat out theft. So the phone call comes October 2008. You get five boxes of material, 30,000 pages. How long does that take to get, get through? It takes a long time. It, it, it took a couple of months to go through it. But then, you know, the other thing, too, is that, you know, I'm sending out uh, legal orders to all right. these providers, and that's taking weeks and sometimes months for them to get back to me to put everything together. Hey, this is Declan. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crime Waves. Our guest is John Gorman, a former organized crime digital security investigator who's now an adjunct professor at the University of New Haven. And he's speaking about his work on the first successful criminal conviction for domain theft. If you're enjoying the episode, please do take a moment to like or follow us on social media. It's super important. Thank you. And now back to John Gorman in the case of domain theft. So you're now into early 2000. You're pursuing, and I want to emphasize this for our listeners, John Gorman at this moment is pursuing a cold case of a type of cyber law that has never at that point been A, successfully investigated, or B, brought a conviction home on. What is the next step that you do in, in terms of this investigation, John? Well, that was what's made it interesting too, Declan, is that it hadn't been done and, you know, different parts of the law they're, they're talking about, you know, how do we prosecute this crime and what do we charge them with? So it came down to theft of movable property is really what it came down to in New Jersey. That was the statute that we used in our case. So that was the, the theft statute that we used and it hit a certain, certain threshold to put it to a third degree crime. So really it came down to a couple of different things, the investigator strategy, but then the prosecutorial strategy, how are we going to go at it? And then how much circumstantial evidence do we need to get a search warrant? Because we want to search the house. And one of the, the problems that we had was the suspect had moved within those two years, moved to a whole nother residence. So I had to prove that the evidence of that crime was at the new residence. So I, I had to show enough probable cause to say, you know, I know this, this guy's moved, but we need to execute a search warrant on his current residence for these reasons. We know that this evidence in its digital format will likely be there. So there was a couple of hurdles to get over, but I have to tell you, there's a guy by the name of Mark Murtha. Uh, he's since passed away from the attorney general's office. He was fantastic. I mean, we, we worked together on this closely and coming up with different legal strategies, prosecutorial strategies and investigative strategies. So uh, it, it was a great team. The actual crime was the stealing of a, of a IPO domain name. address, a domain name, domain name. A domain name yeah. worth 160,000. Mm-hmm. How had the criminal done this? He was, he found the, the domain name. He knew it was valuable and right. he, he was able to figure out the password of the owners. And he was able to go in at a time. That's the other thing that the, the transaction took place late at night. It, it's uncharacteristic of how they conduct the business, but he did it at night so that it wouldn't draw attention. 
And that's when he did it. So he was able to get, so we'll go back to DeclanHill.com. I know your login and password. Yep. I'm able to go in and then I go in as if I'm you. And I'm able to make all the changes and transfers. And that's how he did it. And he, he set up this phony transfer that took place. And then he tried to show with manufactured email that we agreed that you and I, in this case, agreed upon that transfer. When this case, it was the angels. And at, at three o'clock in the morning, it was, blah, it was about 10, it was, I think it was uh, around 10 at night right at that time and it's just uncharacteristic that's not when they did business it just yeah and for and for six minutes i'm now sh selling this massive yeah. important thing now he's he's quote forged this work uh you know this transaction mm -hmm. how does he profit from it he's now got p2p but how does he profit from that oh he's he has something of value so he sells it he looks to sell it he knows it's worth six figures so he knows that p2p the domain name is valuable for a lot of reasons. Right. So and who he, does he sell it to? He, he sells it to a guy by the name of Mark Matson. Uh, you know, it brings another element to it. And unknowingly, Mark Matson isn't, he, he has no knowledge that it was stolen. And in fact, I have to say that uh, I, I never spoke with him. He was an NBA basketball player. What? Uh, yeah, he, he played, Mark Matson was an, an NBA basketball player. Um, and the second I reached out to his attorney, uh, his, his team, they were immediately um, nothing but cooperative in this. And they said, so, sorry, no hang on. He's an NBA player. Yeah. And why does he buy the domain P2P? And I want to emphasize he's not doing anything criminal. He's, he's not at all. Unknowingly, unknowingly buying yeah. this from somebody who stole it from the original. Oh, up in, yes. But just, just satisfy my curiosity. Why does this NBA basketball player, why is he buying a P2P domain? It's got value. He's a, he's a good businessman. He sees something that has value. Uh, you know, it's no different than people buy real estate. They get into the restaurant business, you know, when they're playing sport. This is something it's of value. Investment. It's an investment. That's it. That's, that's it. So right away, there's a mini arm of the investment world that invests in this uh, domain name stuff. And because mm -hmm. P2P is so valuable at that time, mm -hmm. he's going to invest in it. He's going to say, uh -huh. hey. I can buy P2P. Do you remember how much he pays for this P2P? About, about $111,000. Okay. So this is definitely six figures. Yes. And it's $111,000 yeah. from the guy who's stolen it from the yes. people who paid $160,000 for it. Right. So now it's gone. It's out of the angel's ownership and it's gone in someone else's hand. Someone stole it and, and then sold it. So- you know, they wake up one day and see it's no longer in their possession and someone else owns it. Uh, and that was that, that they believe bought it legally. But, you know, that was a whole nother component to this, but that didn't present a whole lot of problems because Matson's teams was very cooperative. They understood right away what happened and uh, we ran it back from there. And, and I have to tell you too, is that at this point too, there was a, a two year civil case that the angels and it's very costly and I have to tell you that, uh, you know, another reason I took it on is when you talk to them and how much the, the, the just emotionally they were invested in this. And you could tell it was just consuming their lives. I just wanted to come on to them and help them out to see what I can do to, to get it from a criminal standpoint. So um, at that point, they got to me. It had been re re reversed uh, out of Matson, but I needed to talk to them from my criminal prosecution to see certain records. And they certainly provided anything they could that was helpful. Now, did you execute that search warrant on the person that stole the, the, the site? 
we did. We executed a search warrant as residents. Uh, we were able to, uh, you know, seize certain digital evidence, yep. which in the end, uh, a another component to the investigation of digital investigations is the forensic examination. And a forensic examination revealed that he did exactly what he thought we did. Uh, we we're able to see he had password breakers on his computer and we actually identified the password, uh, Leslie Angel's password into the domain. We got it. And he actually identified it, that it was hers and he cracked her password. Now, brother, I want to um, slow this down because we're throwing uh, terms yeah. across and many of our listeners know far more than I do, sure, sure. But, but thanks. When you say forensic, you know, you and I are, are at the University of New Haven forensic science. So we're not talking about digging up a dead body. What kind of forensics are we talking about here? So we're talking digital forensics. You're going okay. to do a, a forensic examination in a controlled environment. So this is you're going to examine evidence in a way that you're, you're not going to alter it in any way. You don't change the evidence and you're able to prove that. We have a method for doing that to, to show that we never change the evidence. We examine so you- it. You would take my phone, for example, again, if I was a sure. potential criminal, and you would you, you would investigate what was on that phone and how mm. that phone worked. That's right. So when a properly written search warrant on a residence will allow you to properly examine the evidence seized, the digital evidence seized from that initial warrant. And that's what we did. So we were able to complete a forensic examination on the the hard drives that we found, the computers that we found. Yes. We, and we found the smoking gun. We found the smoking gun, the, the password hacker cracker that hacked the angel's password into that domain. And we saw it and I confirmed it with her. I said, is this your password? She said, yes, it is. And he actually pulled it out and uh, put it to the side and it, it, you know, he left it there for us for, to, to read almost. I mean, it was wow. perfect. It all just came together at that point. No, look, um, again, I, I think it's kind of obvious, but just just talk us through how a password hacker, password cracker works. What is that? It, it's just, it's going to try, there's a couple of different ways to to hack someone's password. And one is a brute force attack. And it's just going to throw a whole dictionary at it. So I can do something called the dictionary attack and just throw a whole dictionary of terms at it. And in this case, that was enough. That, that was enough to crack the password. So um, in this instance, Again, there's, you know, these investigations, you never do it. There's never one person doing it. There was the upfront, there was the prosecutors, there was the forensic support on the back end. Right. You know, the right people were examining and saying, hey, John, here's what we got. What am I looking at? And I said, there it is right there. There's the smoking gun. So we were able to identify how he did it, when he did it, um, the password, everything was there. Now, what happens now? You've got that in the search warrant. You've executed the search warrant. You found that on this password hacker site, which again is a piece of software that's just firing sure. passwords at, at a at a key until the right one clicks in. You know, it's one of these algorithms that people sure. have built in the last decade or so. What happens now? Do you, do you go to court? Do you arrest this guy? What happens? We did. There was a, there was a prosecution that takes place. That's when we work with the prosecution team. Um, Mark Murtha and a guy by the name of Ken Sharp, a great attorney. And, uh, you know, that's when actually the Ken Sharp took over the case and uh, he presented his evidence to, to the defense team. And 
they, they couldn't say anything. So we got you. I mean, we, and Ken Sharp is one of the few attorneys I have to say at the time that he, he just knew cybercrime investigations backwards and forwards. So he was a great partner in this as well. And once we had the evidence, we had the investigation up to that point and we were solid. Uh, there was no defense that could be put up. That's when uh, he, we went to court and uh, there was, there was nothing but a plea entered at that point. And he, he was actually found guilty and sentenced to five years. He was five years in jail for this. Yes. Which I, I guess, you know, if you stole, if you mug somebody and stole 160,000 from them, that would be a similar thing if you were doing yeah. this in real world as opposed to cyber. Um, did the NBA player, Mark Madsen, did he get his money back, the 110,000 that he paid? I don't know. I'm sure he had to go after uh, Daniel Goncalves, who's the, the accused in this case. He had to go after him civilly. I don't know how that worked out. You know, I really wasn't too concerned with that. I was concerned with my end, getting my information from a criminal standpoint, a prosecute, criminal prosecution standpoint, which, again, like I said, they, they gave us everything we needed. But I don't know if he ever was made whole on that. What was the reaction after the conviction from the Angels? You know, these people that had phoned you in desperation in October 2008. What, what, what was their reaction to this case? They related that, you know, we, we saw this through to the end, that we saw a, uh, a successful prosecution. And I have to tell you, it goes to the character of the Angels. You know, they, in, in, a, in a certain way, it was bittersweet for them because they, they're good, kind people. And I say, look, John, we're not, we don't want to see lives ruined here. This is, you know, it's not about that. It was about justice and, you know, seeing this through. So to them, they, they weren't jumping up and down because, you know, hey, we arrested someone for this and now he's going to go to prison for it. Uh, actually, that's not what their concern was. Their concern was that, you know, that they were justified in what they did. They were vindicated. And they said, you know what, we were right. And we saw this through and these cases can be prosecuted. And they, they were big players in the domain world. So they were leading the charge. Albie was speaking all around the country about this. And he wanted people to know that, you know, with the right people, the right team, this stuff can be enforced. And it's important. This has value. And at that time, the Internet was really taken off, you know. So it was important that he got that message out. And that, that, that's a, that was a big part of this. Let me step away um, and talk about what drives you as an investigator. You and I have been friends for years now. But I, w I just want to say, I remember one time, we were talking about a moment that really drove and motivated your investigations. It was when you were uh, working uh, a case and you walked into a house and there was a young lady there. Yeah. Um, tell, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about this because this is really the drive that keeps an investigator going, that fire that goes about why you do it. Please tell us that story. Well, that was a case. That was, my gosh, that was uh, many years ago, but uh, that was a house in Camden that uh, we were investigating a fugitive. And we went into a house in Camden. I'll never forget it. I was staying, it was a freezing cold night. And uh, I was standing in this woman's living room and I was standing there and that's the house where the, you know, the, uh, the stove, all the burners are on, the oven door is open to heat the house, but I'm standing in the living room and I can see the moon because there's a hole in the floor. There's a hole in the roof. And it's just, she's doing, she's an 18 year old girl with a couple of kids, just doing everything to keep it all together. But, uh, she was caught up in something and, you know, she needed our help, uh, you know, 
every person that I've worked with in the state police has that same mentality. They're there for investigatively for the right reasons. They're there, you know, to, to further the cause, to help, to help people who need to be helped. When I moved on to um, child exploitation and child pornography cases, uh, it's called CSAM now, child sexual abuse material, but you are the voice of those victims who can't speak. So, you know, that's, that's how I saw this case is I had two helpless victims who were victimized with the theft, $160,000 and something was taken from them. And you have now have the opportunity to be their voice in this, to see this through and say, Hey, wait a minute, somebody was wronged and we can make it right to something to the best that I can. So that was the driving factor in this um, driving factor in investigations throughout my career. Yeah. I'm saying it's that key thing that I've, we, I, I've seen this one you many, many times. John Gorman, thank you so much for coming on Crimeway. Thank you for all the work that you've done in terms of investigation. It's an honor to have you on this program. Oh, thank you, Declan. Thank you so much for listening to Crime Waves. This week's episode was The Crime Domain with the organized and digital crime expert, John Gorman. If you like this episode, please do follow us on or like us on social media. It's super important. We thank you and we'll see you for the next episode of Crime Waves.